Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. I'm here today to do a podcast based on a user suggestion. And I got a great email with a suggestion for podcast based on what musicians should know in the studio. Meaning, uh, a lot of you out there might be aspiring engineers wanting to get better at recording, yes. But some of you might just be musicians that record with other people or sometimes record on your own, etc. So... It's good to understand what expectations there are for you from engineers. Um, so this show is going to have a lot of good information uh, for people like you, and really for anybody. Um, anybody out there who's an engineer working with clients should probably know, you know, should probably be aware of these things already, but if you're not, then, uh, you know, keep them in mind. So here is 30 things that musicians should know in the studio. All right, number one on the 30 things that musicians should know about recording and musicians should know about the studio. Number one is it's all about the songs, the playing, the musicians, the performance, and the emotion. That is the first rule, no doubt about it. Now, these aren't necessarily in any particular order, but if I had to put them in order, this would be the first one anyway. Um, it's all about the songs, okay? It doesn't matter how incredible the studio is. It doesn't matter if it's the best studio in the world with the best gear and the best engineers. You know, it really doesn't. So, so much of it comes down to the actual playing and the songs themselves. Now, sure, a talented engineer can make you sound better than you really are, but that's not really what you want, is it? That's not really the goal here. You shouldn't be looking into the studio as a means of, oh yeah, they make me sound really good. You should be able to be good without the studio. I mean, how can musicians perform live if they don't sound that good? And I can guarantee you that those big bands that are touring, touring around, that you know, are getting selling out arenas with 100,000 people, I guarantee you they're probably that good. And, you know... A lot of people will sometimes just be in disbelief because they understand what can be done in the studio. But the truth of the matter is, there are musicians that are really that good with no help. Uh, I've got friends that live in Nashville and work in Nashville all the time. And, you know, the session players there not only get paid very well, but, you know, they'll set up and do a, a radio hit in, you know, an hour They'll hear the song a couple times, they'll mess with it a little bit, they'll do one or two takes, and it's done. And the playing really is that good, and there's not necessarily a lot of edits to be done, and that's that. So, it's all about that stuff, okay? It's all about the music first. Number two, it's not all about the gear. However, it can help. So, I'll share a little story to uh, demonstrate this point. Um, I once was doing a session for a client that uh, I'd been trying to record with this client for a long time. They, um, you know, had typically recorded with other people and I really liked the music and I just thought, man, I would really love to work with this, uh, you know, with this client. And it's so funny because when we came in, uh, we were doing some drums and the client said, hey, you know, my drummer just got this brand new drum set and uh, so I'm really excited to hear it. And so, you know, I did my best in the session to get the best drum sounds I could. I really wanted to impress this client. And, you know, 
he heard the sounds and I said, what do you think? And he looked at me and he just said, man, that drum set sounds great. That was a good purchase. And it's, and it was funny to me because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, it's, it's a good drum set, but I meant, what do you think about what I did? Um, you know, what do you think about the sounds that I just got for you? Um, so, you know, the gear is important on both sides, the musician's gear and the studio gear, but it's not the de facto, you know, this is what makes a good record. Um, it's more important that whoever is playing it understands, you know, that it is the correct piece of gear for that application, that even if it may be cheap or expensive, you know, People get hung up on their gear. Musicians get hung up on their gear a lot. You know, guys come in with their crappy snare drums and they're like, yeah, man, this is my sound. And it's only because, you know, they're just having that uh, confirmation bias where they're thinking, well, I paid money for it. I don't want to admit that it might sound crappier than something else. And my brain is telling me that it sounds amazing. And so when they go into the studio, they get all butthurt if the engineer says, wow, that sounds like crap. They're like, no, this is my sound. And it's like, okay, well, your sound is crap. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So anyway, point being, it's not all about the gear, but it can help. Especially in the studio, um, when picking a studio to record, you know, don't just geek out about their gear list. You know, you should be prepared with your side of gear. You know, don't Go into a studio just fully expecting, oh, well, they've got better guitar amps and guitars there. I'll just use one of those. What if one of them is unavailable? What if one of them has been sold? What if one of them's broken? Okay, get your own gear in check, and that's really the main thing that you need to worry about as a musician. Make sure it's good, and also make sure it's the right piece of gear for your sound. Number three, play at 20% of your ability but give 100% on every take. So let me explain this one. I once read that uh, good musicians play at 20% of their actual ability on stage. Basically what that means is their ability far exceeds what they actually play on their songs so that they're playing a simpler part, but they're playing it perfectly and with lots of emotion. So, you know, they might be playing five simple notes on the guitar, but they've got the perfect amount of vibrato and their bends are all in place and all the little tiny details are perfect. That's always going to be much better than somebody trying to show off that can't play it, okay? That's stupid. Now, if you can't play something simple and play with, play with emotion, then you need to check out your abilities, okay? Again, that's not a studio thing that has anything to do with your producer, really, or your engineer. That's something on the songwriting side that you need to have in check before you come into the studio. Whenever you're setting up to record your part, um, you know, give it 100%. You know, if you're punching in on the chorus and somebody says, okay, go ahead and start playing, you know, at, you know on the pre-chorus and I'm going to punch you in on the chorus. Don't just, you know, half-ass the pre-chorus until the chorus comes. Like, play 100% as soon as you, you know, are familiar with the part. You know, if you need more time, you know, uh, on uh, like uh, lead-in time so you can, you know, come in on the pre-chorus, then ask for it, okay? Just ask for it. If you need something more in your headphones, if you need more of your voice or your guitar or whatever to play better, ask for it. But 
whatever it takes for you to give 100% every single take. Okay, if if you need to sit down and practice something, you know, then A, that's kind of a waste of time to everybody in the room, but it'd probably be better than just trying something take after take after take. Point is, don't write stuff that you can't play, you know, and don't expect yourself to have all this time in the studio to just experiment because that might not be a reality. When in doubt, always come prepared. Uh, That's actually similar to number four. So here it is, number four, come prepared. If you come to the studio with all of your songs written, all your parts figured out, you can pretty much just lay it down. But if you have this idea in your head that, oh, we're going to just like come up with stuff on the spot in the studio because of that something that you read on an article about U2 or something, keep in mind that when a band like U2 goes into the studio, they have a long pre-production time. So when they say things like, we wrote some songs in the studio, that doesn't necessarily mean that they wrote them literally on the spot and then hit record. Um, They very well could have rented out the studio for a month just to write and, you know, record pre-production demos. And, oh, look, it just so happens that this recording of this song turned out really cool. Let's just build upon the demo. Okay, so if you need to write songs then you're gonna, and you want to do it in the studio, don't do it in a recording session, okay? Recording sessions are for recording, not for writing. If you need to rent the studio for pre-production to write your parts, and then you want to record in that studio, then do that, okay? Writing in the studio is one thing. If it's done in a recording session, you're just wasting time. Now, if you're improvising and you try something new, that's encouraged. As long as you're a decent improviser, okay? Don't just waste a lot of time trying to, like, come up with a part on the spot if that's not something that you're already pretty skilled at doing. And I encourage you to try to get skilled at doing that. If an engineer says, no, that riff isn't working, play something else, and you freeze up, you really should take some time in your own personal time to develop your chops enough to where you can come up with things quickly, different riffs, understand the keys of the songs, understand the songs so well in and out that you can freely come up with stuff. You know, again, if you write your part solid beforehand, then you know what's there, and that frees you up to experiment a little bit. A lot of bands do that, where they'll they'll write a song a certain way, and in the studio, they'll just change it slight ways based on how they tend to play it that one time in the studio. So leave yourself a little wiggle room, but in general, come prepared, write your parts beforehand, and leave some wiggle room to adjust them, and don't ever get too stuck on a single part. Number five, pick the best songs and only the best. So what this basically means is when you go to record an album, let's say, uh, let's say 10 songs, okay, don't just go to record as soon as you have 10 songs, all right? If you're going to record 10 songs, it's probably best that you have 20 or more written, and then you pick the best 10 out of that 20. Okay, if you don't have 20 songs, you probably shouldn't be recording a 10-song album. Um, Now, again, that's not always the case, but in general, I find that the way the music industry is moving now because of iTunes and Spotify and all these things... um, it's an, it's an industry where singles rule, again. 
just like it did back in the 40s, 50s, 60s with, you know, Elvis and all those guys. Like, if I asked you, what's the best Elvis album? Well, you might not even be able to name it off the top of your head because Elvis was primarily popular because of his singles. And that's how kind of we are now. Now, what happens nowadays is that bands will record a single, they'll record another single, they'll record another single, and eventually they have, you know, five or six singles, and then they finish the album and do another four songs. And at the end of the day, nobody even cares about those other four songs. And that's one way to do it. Uh, Some bands actually end up recording an entire album and then just releasing singles as they go. You know, if you see things online about a band recording, are you really sure that they're recording at that moment? Or was that done months ago and they're just now posting it um, so they can time out their promotion? So anyway, pick the best songs, only the best ones. If you need help, you know, don't ask your friends. They're, you know, they're going to be nice to you and say, oh, it's great. It all sounds good. You know, if you need help, ask the engineer, you know, ask him or the producer, ask him what songs he likes the best. Because 99% of the time, if the engineer likes the songs, they're going to turn out better. They just will. You know, the engineer or producer, um, if they like the songs, if they, you know, the ones that they like the most will probably turn out the best. So keep that in mind. All right, number six, making music takes time. So be patient. Now, this goes in a couple of ways. One of them is for, you know, getting the music actually recorded, which that kind of varies a little. Some sessions go really quick. Other sessions go really slow. But in general, the point is just have patience, okay? Understand that the studio is not all about your part. It's about the whole production. And every production is different. And sometimes those productions take a lot of time. Sometimes you're going to have to spend an oddly long time getting drums to sound good. And you as the guitar player might be sitting there just bored out of your mind. And but But don't do that, okay? Just understand that you're a part of this big process. Be aware, you know, try to stay focused and understand that recording an album is a big undertaking. And you're trying to make this vision happen. Um, and... Everyone is trying their hardest, okay? Same with same goes for mixes, okay? Sometimes mixing takes a little bit longer than anticipated. Sometimes it takes less time. Usually it takes more time. Um, but, you know, don't ever judge a mix engineer by how fast they are. You know, some guys will say things like, oh, well, I used to work with this guy, and it only took him, you know, X amount of hours to mix. How come it takes you so long? Okay, it's it's not so much about, you know how long it takes somebody or how short it takes somebody. All that matters is the result. So just be patient in every step of the process. You know, teach yourself patience when it comes to recording because the engineers have a lot of it dealing with musicians. So yeah, how about how about you get a little patience too, okay? Number seven, understand how to work the mic, but not too much. So this is primarily for singers. Um, in regards to working the mic. Now, all this really means is when you sing louder, you back up a little bit from the mic, and when you sing quieter, you get close into the mic, and then you have sort of a starting position that you, you know, where you stay 90% of the time. Now, some people have different theories on this, um, but in general, that's, that's the idea. 
Now, we're not talking about, you know, moving a foot back and a foot forward. You know, we're talking about almost just a head movement, okay? Like a lean, like maybe a maybe a six inch lean backwards and then, you know, six inch lean forwards. It, it kind of depends, you know, ask the engineer. If you're not sure as a vocalist, if you're not sure, you know, ask him, how much do you want me to work the mic? Do you want me to pretty much just stay in one spot? Some engineers prefer you to not work the mic, and they prefer to, say, ride the fader on the way in. Um, some guys say that it, it actually creates more of a natural tone um, for the person to not move at all. But just be aware of how much working the mic you need to do as a singer. Um, do, you, do they want you to work it a lot? Do they want you to work it not at all? Do they want you to stay in a certain position? Okay, uh, ask them, you know, where you want, they, they need you, and ask them, how much do you want me to work the mic? How close should I be to this? You know, and if they ask you to do a certain thing, then you should be able to do it. So, you know, be flexible on your position. Understand that, you know, it's not, as, not necessarily going to be as comfortable as singing on a stage or singing with no mic in front of your face. Um, but if you have to just close your eyes or something and try to ignore that it's there, um, again, with enough practice, you'll get used to just standing there and not moving and, you know, being patient. Again, on the flip side of that, if you're the type of singer that you know you move a lot when you sing, you, you, you have to move to, to give your right performance and you have to work the mic a lot, let the engineer know this and say, you know, hey, I move a lot when I sing so that he can pick a good mic and, you know, position the stand out of your way so that you can do your thing and do it the best that you can. Number eight, understand when to not play dynamically and when to play dynamically. All right, so there are certain places and, you know, subtle ways that you should play dynamically and play with lots of ups and downs. Um, and there are other times when you shouldn't play dynamically and part of it is just an understanding of dynamics in general. So, you know, understanding dynamics is really important, and I feel like a lot of musicians don't really get it. I have the problem all the time, even with great musicians, of people not really understanding the dynamic of their song, um, or really dynamics in general. Let's talk about drums first, okay? So drummers, you should be able to hit your snare the same volume every single time. Unless you're in a section that needs more power. So it's not dynamic to vary your snare hits every now and then. That's not, that's just unevenness. Okay. What's dynamic is being able to play strong and perfectly even in the first verse and then stronger and perfectly even in the chorus, back it down, play perfectly even in the verse, if that makes sense. So you'd have like, you know, let's say your snare hits were all negative 10, negative 10, negative 10, negative 10. It builds up to the chorus and they're negative 5, negative 5, negative 5, etc., etc. You know, it goes down again for the second verse, goes up again. Last chorus, you're negative 3, negative 3, negative 3. So that's one way to play dynamic. Dynamic doesn't mean uneven, okay? It, it still has to be controlled. The same goes for acoustic guitar players, which I have this problem a lot. Acoustic guitar players will hit their guitar so hard and they'll just sit there and, you know, and, and just bang away on the guitar. And first of all, acoustic guitars don't sound that good when you play really hard on them. They just don't. So 
if you can adjust your new loud to be a little bit quieter, then you can adjust your quiet to be a little bit quieter than it was before. So you need to have a really good hold on dynamics with your instrument. Be able to play evenly in a verse and the same volume, even if that's quiet or if that's loud, and then be able to up that a little bit for the next section, um, still playing evenly, but not really, if, if that makes sense. So the best drummers that I have in and the best guitarists that I have in and bass players too, bass is really important. You know, they all have their own slight differences in dynamics. Now, what I find is generally the best bass players that I work with um, basically try to keep one dynamic throughout the entire song unless it's a down section. So they keep the same exact level the entire song. Every single hit is the same volume. Now, you might think, you know, well, that's not good. You know, why would I want that? Well, a lot of times engineers, bass is really tough to get right. So they might have to resort to doing a ton of automation or a ton of compression to get the bass super even anyway. And then they just automate it up and down for sections. So if you're a bass player, try to focus on keeping your hits as even as possible. Every single hit as even as possible. Okay, whether you're playing, you know, and if you're doing a build or something like that, like, sure, do a, do a build, but bass player dynamics need to be a lot more narrow than, say, a vocalist dynamics. Um, bass players, really, you need to try to keep your dynamics as even and as close together as possible. And your lows, you know, your quiet sections and your loud sections don't need to be that far apart. Okay, so just develop a finer control of your dynamics. Drummers, when in doubt, it's probably not a terrible idea to play evenly throughout the entire song. Um, that actually is pretty easy to work with on my end, uh, to play, you know, the same kick level the entire song. That's easier than dealing with uh, an erratic kick drum. Keep in mind that, you know, if your snare drum is hitting the same volume every single time, it makes compression and EQ and all of that stuff way easier for the engineer because it's hitting the compressor the exact same way every single time, and it just makes it easier. Um, I, people have this idea that, you know, playing perfectly even the entire song isn't dynamic, and they just have a very narrow view of dynamics, okay? Dynamics come in many forms, and we've talked about this from a mix perspective, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but basically, in general, you know, when in doubt, practice your dynamics. If the engineer asks you to play evenly, perfectly evenly, and not change your volume at all, you need to be able to do it. When in doubt, that's probably not too bad of an idea. They can always automate you up and down, for things like vocals and acoustic instruments like piano, acoustic guitar, generally some dynamics are wanted, you know, section to section, but you need to be able to have good control of yourself in each section. So if you're singing quieter in a verse, your verse overall should be even but quieter. Um, same goes for acoustic guitar, piano, you know, vocal, things like that. If you're singing strong in a chorus, you need to be able to sing evenly and play evenly but louder. So the micro dynamics of, you know, hit to hit, strum to strum, chord to chord, word to word, you know, those can 
those need to be pretty close. But the more macro dynamics of verse to chorus, chorus to verse, verse back to chorus, chorus to bridge, those need to be, you know, that's where you really should focus on your dynamics. Try to stay even in your sections other than that. Number nine, understand the picture of the song before you press record. So this is kind of relating to, you know, something that I said and on the last point. Um, but basically, try to visualize the song as it will be finished, um, you know, and what your place in it is. So realize that, okay, it's going to be a mix. So where do you see yourself in that mix? You know, are you going to be kind of in the background as a layer? Then understand that that will affect the way you play. It will affect the tone that you get. So let's talk about rhythm guitars, for example. Let's say you're playing rhythm guitar on something. You know, if you probably don't need to have a super clear, you know, clean tone, um, you know, for a rhythm guitar. You might be able to make a little darker, smoother tone um, because you're going to be fitting in the background of the mix, you know, so realize that your tone and what you play, all those things are also related to, you know, depth and balance and the picture overall. So if you're playing something really staccato, it's going to stick out a little more and therefore it's going to stick out more in the mix. Um, if you're playing something more legato or playing something more chord based, you know, it, it kind of depends on what types of chords and the tone that you're doing, but just understand that every little piece of the puzzle matters and there's a picture that is going to be painted and it's usually by the mixer and the engineer and under, try to understand your place in that picture before it's recorded. Number 10, be able to play to a metronome perfectly even if you don't record with one. Okay, it baffles me how many people, you know, view the metronome as, oh man, it kills music or, you know, oh, it takes away the feel and I like all these tempo changes, even if they're really subtle. And that's just not, you know, tempo changes are fine in, in, in certain types of music. But for the most part, being able to play perfectly with a metronome is just a skill that any musician should have. So if you record yourself, let's say a drummer and you see your hits as they cross the bar in each measure. It's one thing if your snare, let's say your snare drum falls a little bit late um, from the bar. Let's say your kick drum's right on the bar and your snare drum is a little bit behind. That's fine as long as your snare drum is a little bit behind every single time. Okay? The kick drum can be right on, the snare drum can be right on, as long as they are right on every single time. 90% of the time what happens is drummers will speed up during a fill and then they'll be a little bit ahead of the beat in the first little bit of the chorus and then they'll slow back down and try to compensate and they'll, they'll overcompensate and then they'll overcompensate and then try to go slower and these subtle timing differences will really, 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 really add up to be a drum performance that sounds uneven. Um, trust me, I know because I've edited song after song after song of drummers, um, just lining up their kick and snare and tom hits to the bar the same way every single time. Be aware of how you tend to fall on the bar line. If you're a guitar player, what I find is a lot of guitar players, you know, 
tend to be right on the beat, if not a little bit ahead. Um, it kind of depends on the person, but that's fine as long as they're a little bit ahead every single time. Uh, bass players, it's generally best whether you're right on or right behind. The key is that you're behind the drummer. The key is that you develop a touch where you're just slightly behind the kick and snare. And we're talking about not even really an audible thing. You know, a difference in 10, 20 milliseconds, something, you know, very, very small. It's just a touch thing that bass players eventually just get used to. You know, playing tight with a kick drum, playing tight with the drummer. That's what that means, is playing in the right spot with the drummer because if the bass note and the kick drum hit at the same time they neither one sounds powerful but if the kick hits and the bass is slightly behind just slightly slightly behind then you can hear both clearly the kick drum hits and the bass note sustains there you go so anyway be able to play to a metronome practice it Record yourself if you can. See how you far on the, how how you know far off you are from the bar line. You know, play something relevant. Play just a groove or a, or a chord passage or you know a bass groove or something. Play, play something musical. Don't just like try to sit there and like ba 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 ba. You know, try to play something music to a metronome, and record yourself. Get used to the fact that you're probably not as perfect as you thought you were to a metronome and understand that, you know, engineers and producers and editors are a lot pickier than you are when it comes to the metronome. So yeah, practice up. Number 11, understand the basic flow of a session, the do's and don'ts, studio rules and etiquette. So every studio is going to have slightly different rules. Every studio is going to have slightly different, you know, ways that they operate, ways that they do sessions. But in general, just try to get a general idea of, you know, the flow of how the sessions are going to go. You know, try to be aware of, you know, is it is it a faux pas if I, you know, want to go out and smoke or whatever? Or when's the best time to do that? Or when's the best time for us to go get lunch? Is it better for us to bring lunch here? Does the studio want us to have food? Is there an area where we're supposed to eat? Probably not around the mics. You know, just general rules. Just be aware and understand, you know, the flow of how a session goes in that particular studio. Um, be polite. Okay, be polite to the engineer. Be polite. If you're playing on somebody else's record, they are king. Okay, it's not your record. You answer to them. They are your boss. If you're working for an engineer, they are your boss. Okay, don't try to be the hero and be like, oh no, this part is better. If the engineer says, no, I, that's not what I want you to play, you know, don't argue with him. Okay, you are there for hire and it's not your record. Okay. Don't ever get hung up on your ego and say like, well, you know, you hired me and that's, that's what I would do. Okay. That's, you know, that's going to kill your, I've known people to lose gigs over that good, good paying gigs because of their ego, because they were too hung up on the way that they do things. And they think that, you know, the way that they do it is good and that other people should, you know, see that and, and recognize it and pick what they have to do. And that's just not the truth. Um, 90% of the time, what I find is that, you know, because even still, if you do what they say and the record turns out to suck, not your fault, is it? 
I've never seen an engineer really suggest something that makes somebody sound bad. Honestly, it's usually, hey, play simpler. Play something simpler. It, it doesn't mean that you sound bad. It usually means the engineer is trying to, like, subtly say, hey, that is really annoying because it's getting in the way of other things and you don't realize it because you're too hung up on your own playing. So I'm hearing it from a big picture standpoint saying that bass fill or that drum fill or that guitar riff doesn't need to be there. It's just a distraction. So I'm going to clean this up and keep the focus on the thing that's more important than you, which is the singer. So yeah, get, get rid of your ego, understand, you know, the session flow, understand your place in the session. You know, if you're recording with your band, you know, and you're recording in a new place, just understand the producer, the engineer, the studio, you know, ask questions. Don't just do stuff, you know, don't just wander around and just like touch gear or whatever. Like, you know, just be polite and understand the flow of that session. Number 12, know what type of session you're in and know what type of session you want. So the records can be made lots of different ways. Things can be recorded live, they can be done individually, they can be done in a hybrid style where some where things are recorded live and then overdubbed a lot, and then, you know, sometimes you'll record the whole band but only keep the drums, things like that. So, just, first of all, if you're in one of those sessions, understand very early on what you're doing, because that will alter, you know, the way that things go. It will alter probably the way the engineer will work a little bit, where you're going to be positioned, potentially what gear you can use, etc. Um, if you're doing things individually, it probably means you're going to be doing a lot more waiting around. But you need to be still present in the room and realize that the engineer or producer could call you up at any second and be like, you know what, let's... Uh, Let's get some bass on this. And, and you need to be, you know, present and in the moment and ready. Um, if you're doing a hybrid type session, don't think, oh, we can just overdub my stuff later. Again, give your 100% every single take. Pretend it is the take, you know, that it's the one. Because everybody wants to get it done sooner. You know, the longer you spend on something, you know, sometimes it can get worse and worse and worse. So give it your all. Understand the type of session you're in. And, and really just be aware. Number 13, uh, when listening to mixes from the mix engineer, listen to things on as many systems as possible and try to average out the things that you're hearing. If you hear something that's off, write it down, take it to a different system. So on the systems, listen in your car. That's the number one place you should listen, in the car. Driving around. Don't just sit there in the car, drive around and listen to it. Okay, it should sound pretty good. Listen to it on headphones. Listen to it on a home theater system or a TV if you've got it. You know, uh, listen to it on your laptop or your iPad. Listen to it on as many systems that you, as you can. Write down notes each time, you know, and if, for example, you hear something like, uh, the snare sounds really good in the car, but it sounds really harsh on headphones. Write that down, okay? Don't just be like, oh, it's probably my crappy system. Write something down, because what that could mean is that the snare is a little bit too scooped. The engine, the mix engineer will be appreciative that you write this down, because if it sounds good in the car, the car has more low end than the headphones. So the snare might have a good low end, 
but it doesn't have it, it has a weird mid-range content on smaller speakers so the low end might need to be moved up a little bit from you know 100 hertz up to 180 or 150 or something like that to be heard effectively in headphones or the mid-range there might be too much mid, mid-range information 500 600 700 800 900 hertz somewhere in there you know that that's causing it to be a little bit mid-rangey on headphones or something so write down your notes listen to it on lots of systems you know but at the same time don't overwhelm the mix engineer with notes about like just random things you might have heard okay um that's what i meant by try to average out the sound so if for example you listen on five different systems and the snare sounds good on four out of five then it's probably the snare probably sounds good you know every you know you don't you don't necessarily notice it but um you know if the vocal sounds a little bit too loud on two systems um, but it sounds just right on three systems, you know, that's something you might be able to say, you know, okay, you know, the vocal sounded a little quiet in my car, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure. But again, tr- don't, don't just, you know, make five separate sets of mix notes for every single song, you know, but in general, try to average out certain things. If you're on the fence, you know, try to, try to cross things off your own list like kick drum sounded great in the car sounded bad on headphones sounded bad here sounded bad here okay four out of five places the kick sounded funny you know you should probably mention that but if four out of five places the kick sounded great probably sounds great number 14 do not succumb to the loudness war it only serves to ruin all of your music create you know render it worthless for what you've just spent all this time recording so all the time, you know, I, I get to this position in a in a mix uh, where the mixes are almost done. We're ready to send off to the mastering engineer. We all like how they sound. We send it off to the mastering engineer. We get the first pass. Sounds great. And the first thing the band sa- says is, well, it's not as loud as I thought it was going to be. Can you make it louder? Okay. Just be aware that every single little decibel that you squeeze out of that music is you know, ruining the dynamics, it's ruining the sound, it's clipping off your punch trans your punchy transients, it's, you know, affecting the overall output. For what? A little bit louder? I mean, yes, we are in a generation of iPod shuffles and and of iPods and Spotify and iTunes and all those things. But a lot of these places, such as YouTube, are even starting to level match songs based on RMS level. Um, because what they were getting complaints of the difference in, let's say a music video and somebody's video that they uploaded. Uh, so YouTube is apparently, uh, instilling a, a method of level matching. Apparently Spotify does the same thing. That's unverified. I'm not sure about that. You could probably Google it, but a lot of places are starting to do level matching in iTunes. You can do level matching and I'm pretty sure you can level match on your iPhone or your iPod. Um, I'm not exactly positive. I've honestly never looked into it. But point being, always go for what sounds the best, okay? And don't just throw out all of your mixer's decisions. Like, I've seen, you know, I've had clients even that, you know, I'm sitting there saying, no, don't go any louder. Please don't any louder. I think it sounds great. And they're like, well, you know, we just wanted to be able to compete. Listen to your engineer, okay? You just paid all this money to make it happen. Listen to them, okay? They probably know what they're talking about. You know, it's not... You know, if, if, for example, you think it's going to sound better by making it louder, you're already in the wrong. If your sole reason 
is to be as loud as something else, then you really got to look at what you're actually doing because it's really not worth it in the end because you're, you're just going to look back at it later and say, man, I really wish we would have gone with the first master. A little tidbit on this is it's actually been proven that louder songs sell worse than more dynamic songs. Um, now, there's a certain point where, uh, you know, too dynamic is a bad thing. But we're talking about an RMS of, you know, negative 9 as a maximum, negative 10, negative 11, you know, negative 12 is nice and dynamic, uh, nice and punchy. But something like negative 7, negative 6, I mean, that's starting to get into the territory of no dynamics. Um, you know, the difference between loud and quiet is nothing. Um, you really, really should, should reconsider if you want to make something super, super loud. Number 15, don't record with somebody because they're cheap, but don't record with somebody because they're expensive. Record with somebody who makes recordings that you like and that have a sound of which you're jealous. So... When you're trying to pick a studio or trying to pick an engineer, I understand that you want to go with somebody you trust, but do you trust them because they're your friend or you've known them? Um, or do you trust them because they're really going to make the best record possible? I've turned down projects before and people have even argued with me. I, I had a client call me the other day and they wanted to do a metal record. And I know an engineer who's much better at metal than I am because I don't listen to metal. I don't really record metal. I mean, it's fine. I, I have no, you know, I don't dislike it. I just, it's just not the world I grew up, grew up in really. Um, and I know other engineers that do metal better than I do. And it's like, hey, you know, why don't you call this guy? And he was like, well, I want to work with you. And I'm thinking, well, I honestly don't think I'm going to do a good job. I don't listen to metal. I'm not a metal producer. He's like, yeah, but I like the sounds of your recordings. It's like, okay, thank you very much, but those aren't metal recordings. <laughs> you know, I'm much more of a rock, folk, uh, you know, country, jazz, more, I guess, lighter styles of music, if you want to call it that. Um, but not, not so much the heavier stuff. And I know other engineers that can do a better job, you know, so, so when you're trying to pick an engineer, you know, try to just pick somebody that you think will do the best recording of your style as possible. Okay. Don't go with somebody based on price. Don't go with somebody based on notoriety. Don't go with somebody based on, oh, well, they produced this record for this band. So they're clearly, you know, successful and they'll do a great job on my record. Um, that's just not the case. You know, I've seen people record with Grammy winning people, you know, that are supposed to be the best out there. Right. And, and the truth is that with that artist and that particular album, it just didn't click. And people have spent lots of money chasing a pipe dream of, oh, well, this person recorded with them and they sound amazing and they're successful and they want a Grammy or whatever, so then I'll be, that will be me. And that's just, you know, that's an association error. That's just not necessarily how it happens. You know, sometimes artists and producers and engineers just click and the record just happens. Try to find somebody that will click with what you're doing, will click, you know, and, and somebody that really likes the music and likes you and understand and, and is excited about working with you. Okay, that's just really important. 
So thanks for joining us for part one of What Musicians Should Know in the Studio. Uh, as always, if you need to contact me, my email is recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want rates for freelance mixing and mastering for your projects, I'm more than happy to do so. Please just email me and we can figure that out. If you want to check out the blog, that website is recordinglounge.blogspot.com. The Facebook page, facebook.com slash recordinglounge. Be a part of the community. Email me with questions and show ideas and comments. Uh, sign up for our mailing list, which is free and no spam. It's recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. I think that's the link. But uh, do that. Every now and then I'll send out newsletters talking about new shows, cool little inside tidbits about shows, um, other little cool info that is not really necessarily enough to make an entire show around. Uh, so anyway, appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Um, stay tuned for the next episode.